It's time for your local weekly analysis, Slow County Public Policy and the Law, with your host, Stu Jenkins. The union forever, ah, boys, hurrah, down with the trainer, up with the star, while we rally around the flag, boys, rally once again, shouting the battle cry of Welcome to Slow County Public Policy and the Law, only on KNews FM 98.5. I'm your host, Stu Jenkins. As a lawyer, I help folks protect their families and real estate in their estate plans. I also represent farming, industrial, and commercial landowners. Since 1978, I have tried several thousand Slow County court cases. It has been my privilege to strike down unconstitutional election laws and city ordinances and represent Republican candidates and the Democratic Party. I have served repeatedly as Superior Court Special Master. One of my election law prosecutions against the Bureau of Cannabis Control ultimately removed marijuana billboards from Route 101. On Slow County Public Policy and the Law, office holders, lawyers, and activists appear to inform you about government actions shaping your lives. That focus brings people with different points of view to have an opportunity, without being attacked, to tell you about how they think the laws can be improved, even if I or station management disagree with a guest's ideas. Last week, I hosted presiding judge of the Superior Court, Craig Van Royen, to talk about grand juries. I also interviewed Santa Barbara County Supervisor Joan Hartman about Santa Barbara County's progress towards a sustainable budget, electricity, and water. If you missed last week's show, log into the podcast of the interviews at knews985.com. That's K-N-E-W-S. 985.com. In our first hour today, I am going to talk with Ryan Munevar about why his organization, Decriminalize California, is proposing a statewide initiative to legalize psilocybin mushrooms. In our second hour, James Worthley tells us how and why the San Luis Obispo County Council of Governments, SLOCOG, is asking you to vote for a new additional half-cent sales tax. Both measures are likely to be on your 2024 November ballot. But now, before I welcome Ryan Munevar to the show, let me give you all a bit about his resume of impressive achievements. From 1997 through 2010, Ryan attended Saddleback College, Irvine Valley College, Santa Monica College, and Lawrence Technological University, studying theater, political science, photography, English, and communications. He received his certificate in California lobbying ethics in 2016, and from 2015 on, Ryan advocated from various platforms for legalization of marijuana. Now he is the campaign director for Decriminalize California, an organization that is passing for signature a petition to legalize psilocybin mushrooms. Welcome to the show, Ryan. Thank you for having me. 
How are you? Well, I'm good, and I hope you're well, too. Um, you're, you're calling in to the show. That will affect how we discuss things. Okay. Uh, there will be a time when I have to tell you we're coming up on a hard break, and, uh, and so we'll break for the news. But okay. in, in the meantime, I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about uh, what led you to transition from efforts to legalize marijuana into efforts to legalize psilocybin mushrooms. Sure. So back in 2016, when Prop 64, Adult Use Marijuana Act, passed, uh, at the same time I was running, uh, working on four different initiatives at the county level in Monterey, for the cultivation, manufacturing, distribution, and overall taxation of what cannabis would look like there. And ours passed. Um, and all four of them passed simultaneously in 2016, but then the Use Marijuana Act went through. And unfortunately, that system was so heavily regulated and over-regulated and overtaxed, and so many unique laws were thrown together at the last minute to try to put that thing through, uh, that it really clogged up the system as far as what an economy could look like for the product and substance that is, in essence, cannabis. So we looked at it, and we did a lot of good work with what we could do at the county level, but at the state level, it was pretty much a disaster. And as you can see what the effect is on the cannabis industry today, it's pretty rough going in a lot of different areas. So. A lot of what happened was in 2018, I had a chance to draft just a very beginning uh, research-based model for psychedelics and then actually for just specifically magic mushrooms. And then over a bunch of different drafts that we got using an open source process, we ended up developing language that was in essence the antithesis to everything that went wrong with cannabis in California 2016 and on. So. That's how it came into existence, and that was the transition for me for how it happened. Well, and um, looking at your initiative, um, which, you know, I have run initiatives before and uh, worked on those, some of your materials are actually uh, very good at guiding people about what they need to do in order to gather signatures and and put uh, a measure on the ballot. What what do you see as the differences uh, with the psilocybin mushroom uh, initiative that you've drafted um, that's actually been submitted back in May of 2023 and the, uh, the initiative uh, that got through with Prop 64? Uh, where do you see the, the better language or the, the better aspects of it that you think will be better than Prop 64? I immediately go to taxes right out of the gate. Uh -huh. So, for example, with cannabis at the local county or city level, depending on which one you're in, uh, you basically get a cultivation tax if it's even allowed, because there's still a ton of areas in the state of California where it's not allowed to use cultivate. Right, right. And that tax, in essence, is compounded into a manufacturing tax. And when you get to the wholesale distribution level next, because that's still basically a whole bunch of federal nonsense. You don't get any like actual tax breaks or write-offs for a business starting, so it makes it very difficult. And then if you finally get to the point of sale, either to a customer or a patient, depending on how they wish to be defined, you get also an excise tax, and that's generally something you would give to an establishment that was like a cards and dice gambling establishment, a nudie bar, 
place to sold booze too close to the local house of worship. It is, in essence, the syntax. So then... Well, I'll grant we, you that, Ryan, but, but let's, uh, let's back up just a second on that. Um, essentially, Prop 64 was a little bit like the end of Prohibition on Alcohol. It gave local option. Uh, like the end of Prohibition on Alcohol, that gave states local option of whether to legalize alcohol or not and how to regulate it. Um, and then some of the states gave counties local option, etc. So I, I mean, I kind of I kind of look at at uh, Prop 64 as having done that on the state level, and the part of the local option was that a county or a city could uh, levy a tax or a fee or sometimes both. Is that an accurate uh, description, in your view? Uh, to a certain degree, but there's an added component. Um, the syntax that basically got applied to cannabis taxes at the local sales level, yeah. that varied in percentage quite a bit across the board. Oh, yes. And that was because it could be set locally. Right. And so that was one of the problems that kind of made it like, in the essence, almost musical chairs where businesses would float around an area, have some interest, but then bounce over to another area simply because it was cheaper taxes over there, mm-hmm. or the tax scheme for some reason just made more sense. Like perhaps they didn't even do like a standard percentage manufacturing tax in certain southern Monterey uh, County cities. They would just do it as like a flat fee of like, you know, $35,000, something like that. Well, can I, can I test something for you here? Um, sure. Because I, I think the tax issue is very important when it comes to these kinds of substances. If uh, I wander down to my local tobacconist, and I've done this to get the figures, a tax on a $10 cigar is $4.44. So uh, of that $10, that's how much is tax. Um, I haven't seen anything of that level with cannabis sales. Have you? Yeah, because what ends up happening is at the local levels, it all gets passed down to the point of sale. But then there's another thing. You also pay the local sales tax on top of the excise tax. And now that the state went through, the state has its own additional taxes. And because you have a state local permit at the local city county level and you have a state license, they have to match up. So, for example, if you don't pay your taxes in cannabis, let's say quarterly tax for a dispensary is $100,000. If you're late on that, well, the fine is basically 50% of the tax, and if you don't pay that rather quickly, they basically null and void your state license, which in essence cancels out your local permit. So there's another issue where the way the law is written, the local municipalities, the county and city level, this is especially prevalent in Los Angeles, they're telling their people at the end of the business day that the final taxes on those receipts need to be then applied and paid out to the county, whereas the state is saying the same thing, but only it's supposed to go to the state at the end. So they're totally confused about how to even calculate at what point they apply which okay. tax in the process. So in, in your California Psilocybin Initiative 2024, how did you solve that for that particular substance? <clears throat> Basically defined by use. So taking one step back, cannabis... There's supposed to originally be some form of a discount if you were a medical patient. That's why you went out and got the medical card, because you're not supposed to be taxed for your medicine. But in the state of California, we do. Even though cannabis is technically a medicine, it's also treated like a thin taxable item. And ours, we basically set it up by use so that if it was used for medical 
therapeutic, religious, or spiritual use, it wouldn't be taxed. But if it was listed as an adult use item on the package and a point of sale for use, then you would only tax that could be applied would actually be the local sales tax. So if you walked into a place that was selling a magic mushroom-infused chocolate bar for 20 bucks, the local sales tax was 10%, you'd walk up paying $22 as in comparison to the difference of cannabis where in a gray market dispensary, you walk up paying 45 to $60 for an eighth, whereas in the black market, it's around 20 bucks. Interesting. When you said uh, 20 bucks or $44 for an eighth, was that an eighth of an ounce? It'd be the comparison, yeah. So okay. 3.5 grams of weed. If you're going to buy an eighth from uh, the black market versus a gray market dispensary, black market's 20 bucks because they don't have overtaxation and overregulation or any paperwork, uh-huh. and then in the dispensary, it's like 45 to 60 for the same quality eight. Well, if you just tuned so, in, folks, you're listening to Ryan Munevar with Decriminalized California, talking about uh, the organization's uh, initiative to legalize psilocybin mushrooms. Sorry to interrupt, Ryan. The question, I think, we're in San Luis Obispo County, broadcasting to... Uh, uh, Monterey County and Santa Barbara County and, and of course, our own county. Uh, we've had a lot of difficulties here where we've actually had a uh, purveyor of cannabis, uh, marijuana, or uh, as you so accurately called it, weed, actually go to prison for bribing a county supervisor for permits. Uh, I think the permitting process uh, in Prop 64 was... Uh, also a problem. Have you got anything built into this new initiative about psilocybin mushroom to try to cut out that kind of corrupt practice? Yes, absolutely. So cannabis back in the day, in my opinion at least, should have actually been controlled by the California Department of Food and Agriculture, the CDFA, because it is in essence a textile and an agricultural crop Mm -hmm. at the same time. Okay. And I don't think we should have actually had, and keep in mind, I had a business that made an extraordinary amount of money making and getting permits for local areas. Um, but in this case, I was so sick and tired of the paperwork. I never wanted to have to go through that nonsense again for a, a business because we already have California, for anyone who has a small business or medium-sized business or very large business, it's very difficult to operate a efficient business from the paperwork standpoint when it comes to dealing with the state and the taxes. Mm-hmm. So I didn't want to have a special magic mushroom permit at the local level or state license to match up because that's just licensed <laughs> set up. Like I heard this great line once, um, the only cure for bureaucracy is corruption. And that's pretty much what happened with a lot of the permit issuing processes where they would score different evaluations, but then they would change and things would just be, well, what it is, a lot of backdoor deals, especially in the agricultural world. That's very common. Uh, in this case, I was like, you know what? We don't technically need that. As long as a business is incorporated in California either as a non-profit, a not-for-profit, a for-profit, or a sole proprietorship, they would, in essence, get a tax EIN number from the state for tax tracking purposes, and they could, in essence, begin operating if they were doing things in the right zones to begin with. So if you want to cultivate magic mushrooms, you have to cultivate it in agriculturally zoned areas. So, so Ryan, let, to, let, me, let me ask a question yeah. about that. Uh, the list of business entities you just reeled off uh, that could then uh, be cultivating magic mushrooms uh, did not, it didn't sound like it included a partnership or individual uh, uh, sole proprietor. 
Uh, no, sole proprietors in there and any for-profit business. Okay. okay. So basically, you could be an LLC, you could be an S-Corp, and a lot of this is because the types of uses that people would want to have defined. Like if you're medical, you're probably going to be either a formal LLC, a partnership, even an S-Corp if they have shares, if they're doing research. And if you're going to be doing a nonprofit or a not-for-profit, there's two different definitions for that, technically then you would be, you know, a 501c3, a c4, a c6 is like a trade association, sure. and mm-hmm. other various ones that exist. Or a church, for example, like a standard 501c3. So that's why we're like, you can be all of these things, and then if you basically want to just be a single person as a sole proprietor, you're good to go. As long as you're basically incorporated in California, any one of those, you can, in essence, begin cultivating, manufacturing. And so you, could, you couldn't be incorporated in Nevada? No. Okay. Well, that's there's one Which, pos- positive thing there. Um, depends on how, 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 how many you pay taxes. <laughs> if you're going to pay taxes in one state, like for example, Delaware and Nevada are the top spots to go because they're both the most friendly environment to the corporational structures. Practically if, tax-free. In some cases, yes. Yeah. Uh, other areas like Washington State, they don't have any income tax. But the thing is, if California is going to approve this, they're going to want to work with California Incorporated Businesses here for tracking and accountability mm-hmm. purposes, and of course, the taxes. Well, Ryan, how many so, signatures does decriminalize California need to uh, gather in order to put this on the 2024 ballot? We need approximately 546,000 signatures. We have approximately 31% of that right now, and we have 69 days to our goal of January 10th, 2024, and that's when we have to submit all of them at once. Yeah. Been there, done that. Uh, so I know, I know what you're going through to do that. Uh, that's a lot of work. Are you, are you pay, having paid signature drivers out there? No. Um, a lot of the reason for that is because when you file early, technically you can get them cheap. But at the same time, if there's not a bunch of other initiatives out there being actively collected, um, it's very hard to match up. One of the techniques we do is a lot of the regular signature companies use our petitions as loss leader sheets. So they get people over, they get them excited, they sign our sheet on the top, and then mostly people are psychologically programmed to then trust that person and sign all the other sheets below. And that's what a lot of other initiatives use as far as paid sheets. And the range is anywhere from like $2 to $10, depending on how much of a hype initiative has oh, yeah. um, and what the deadline is. The closer you get to the end, the more you have to pay per signature. So we just focus mostly on people as far as volunteers and brick and mortar locations. Now, here's, here's the tough question that our listeners want to know on uh, KNews FM 98.5. Um, why would legalization of psilocybin mushrooms be a good thing? Fantastic question. Well, because we know the illegality of it and the effect it has on society for people going to jail, how much money we have to spend for nonviolent related drug crimes, and all the other damage it causes to families when you start tearing people up for that, that it costs more to society overall, and none of those tactics have ever actually worked to, in essence, make it easier, safer, or better. So there's four criteria you can use to rank any substance or service as far as an initiative. It goes like this. Access to the substance or service, quality of the substance or service, price of the substance and service, and the true social impact it has. And it has to work economically as a law. Otherwise, it won't work at all for any one of those other reasons. If you combine them all even and they're good, it still doesn't matter. So 
access is basically everybody can get to it, and then they can also seek other people for guidance on how to properly use it. The quality, because it would be run through, in essence, CDFA, California Department of Food and Agriculture, would actually test the products that they were being sold for commercial use. And if the average person was going to grow them at home, which they could do under this initiative if it passed, then they know exactly what they're getting, like the tomatoes in their backyard from the previous season. I'll know what's in there because they were the ones who planted well, I'm, it. I'm glad you have so much faith in uh, folks growing their own because uh, my tomatoes sometimes turn out good and sometimes they turn out pretty bad. Um, but I, I grow a lot of tomatoes too, so we can talk about that for hours. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, my favorite are black cream and tomatoes, but that's a different story. You know, one one of the other things I've noticed about the. Uh, cannabis or marijuana industry in uh, our county is that very little enforcement that prevents the gray market from uh, operating in order to collect the tax. Where's the money going to come from for the enforcement uh, to collect the tax on uh, psilocybin mushrooms? Basically, that's where the local sales component comes in. If you're actually a registered business. You don't need to go out there and make a magic mushroom store or a psychedelic dispensary. What you would do is simply just add it as an extra product on the skew on your shelves. So, for example, if you had a yoga studio, a coffee shop, a bookstore, vinyl record store, a tattoo parlor, organic cafe, um, you could, in essence, sell that. And then it's just an extra product you're already adding to your inventory count when you're doing your book. Yeah, but 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 where's the money for the sheriff or the local PD to actually go out and make sure that there's not a gray market uh, that's competing with that? Honestly, in our experience, unless the gray market is being really atrocious for whatever the substance or service is, they're not out there enforcing it. And if we know that's a fact, and we know it's just a lot easier to just conduct business naturally, the real organization that would be enforcing that would actually be the IRS. Because at this point, if it's pretty much all decriminalized for the average individual, and worst case scenario is they're going to get a permit violating if they're cultivating in a spot they're not supposed to be, because they're not incorporated in California, which is like one of the easiest requirements. Ryan, we're coming up on a hard break here, so um, I want to follow up with you on the IRS and enforcement and federal issues regarding psilocybin mushrooms. Stay tuned, folks, to Slow County Public Policy and the Law.